We are live. Uh, welcome to Forward Guidance, uh, the podcast. I am joined by Joseph Wang, senior Fed trader, and Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Gentlemen, today is such an important day. The much-anticipated FOMC meeting that we had a statement where the Federal Reserve uh, announced they would uh, hike rates by 50 basis points. They had a, an announcement on quantitative t uh, tightening, you know, tightening that balance sheet. And then the the you know, much anticipated uh, Powell presser, where a lot of questions, a lot we got to see uh, inside the head of, of the you know chair of the Federal Reserve. So I'll start with you, Jim. What stood out to you? Were there any surprises? Was there did you notice anything that was different than what you were expecting? Yes. Uh, but first, can I, can I ask a, uh, Joseph a quick question? Should I refer to you as Mr. Wang or Mr. Guy? Which one would you prefer? <laughs> Joseph, Joseph is fine. <laughs> okay, Joseph. Um, as far as the Paul Presser goes, there were two things that I noted about the Presser to myself. First of all, he took the unusual step in the beginning of the Presser to talk to the American public directly. He was asked about that. And he was asked whether or not he perceived that the Fed had a credibility problem. And he said, of course, he said no, but I think he actually does fear that he has a credibility problem, that he has to go and remind the American public that the Fed is here to bring down those onerous costs that you're facing uh, as well. And the second thing that jumped out at me about the press conference, look, the, the, the simple takeaway for market people is 75 basis points was off the table and the stock market's up 3%. Uh, there was also a credibility problem in the Fed that we were pricing in the outlier. We were pricing in the outlier a lot more than the Fed thought. I don't think that when Powell goes back and looks at what happened after he repeatedly said tightening financial conditions is a key to bringing it down inflation, that his words produced a 3% rally in the stock market, that that's helping his cause. It's not helping his cause. Now, if you're long stocks, you may like it. Um, if you're Jim Cramer, you may like it. But if you're Jay Powell trying to rein in inflation, you're further away from the target now than you were two hours ago. Joseph, do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. I, I think the rally might be short-lived, though, because when I look at it, it looks like seeing the VIX crush like that. It seems like a lot of people basically basically, you know, sold their puts. And so the dealers are probably covering that. So it's probably just some kind of huge short rally. It might go down later. Um, but uh, I, but I, I agree, agree with I agree with that, Joseph. It, it probably is. But he nevertheless, he he made a bullish comment and he sparked a rally. And I don't he, think that's he what he intended to do. He, did. he should have kept 75 basis points on the table. I mean, you know, that that kind of uncertainty that tightens financial conditions, just taking it categorically off. That 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 was the that was the catalyst for sparking that rally. I think. I mean, fixed income crush yields went lower, and you know, stocks responded. I think. I, Joseph, I completely agree with you. He 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 should never have taken seventy five off the table. That doesn't mean you have to do it, but he basically just said they're not going to do it at the next meeting, and yeah. so he did. Uh, you know, throw a bone to the bulls in the market, and this <clears throat> while he was saying. He needed financial conditions to tighten as the stock market was going vertical on his comments. Vertical, yeah. That was that was a monster rally. That was up almost a thousand points. Mm -hmm. But he, he did though, he did kind of toss in that he would do fifty basis points for the next two meetings. So it kind of so it's not seventy-five. We that the market was priced for seventy-five, but it's it's still pretty aggressive. I mean, if you if you think back a year ago when the commentary was basically like, maybe the Fed will do 25, maybe the Fed won't raise at all. And 
now they're doing 50 like three times now and, and jim you're way ahead of the curve on that like far before anyone was talking about this you were like the vet is going to go very aggressively now lo and behold yeah. that's exactly what they're doing you know in fact i was re-looking re at some of my notes and it was the october fed meeting october seven months ago that there was one rate hike priced in for the whole year and that was a debate whether or not there'd even be one rate hike and that was seven months ago see how far we've come in in seven months as far as where the Fed is. But you're right. I think that the Fed needs to be aggressive. The other takeaway, Jack, that I saw from the press conference, I think every single question was about inflation or was a derivative of inflation. There really wasn't a lot of questions, if any, about growth in the economy, um, you know, the, the outlook for jobs. There were questions about that, but they were within the context of dealing with inflation. So it seems like the pivot, if you will, I'm going to use that word, is complete. If you want to talk about Fed policy, we could take things like retail sales and um, the jobs report, and, and we could push those aside. And let's just talk about the inflation numbers, because that's what's driving policy. And that's what's driving the decision making on policy. And to that end, one other comment that I would say Paul mentioned the, the JOLTS report a couple of times. That's the job opening labor turnover report. That's the report where it says that there's 11 million open jobs and there's 6 million unemployed. And he basically said it within the context of, if I was to sum it up, we can raise rates and people won't lose their jobs. We can lean on the stock market and we're not going to create more unemployment. In, because there's so much that any any one on to say how strong the labor market was and how healthy the labor market was. And I have argued these are code words for I can go aggressively. And to the point that, you know, he said that the 50 basis points for the next few meetings, I don't think we're going to see another 25 basis point hike. I think it's going to be 50, at least 50 until they're done with the cycle. I think mm. 50 is the new hike right now. I can't envision why they would downturn to 25 unless you want to make the case to me that inflation is going to peak in the next month or two. We could talk about that. And it's 5% on its way into the four handles by September. Maybe then you can make the case that they'll, they'll go to 25s. But if that doesn't happen, it's going to be 50s all the way. And maybe that 75 will come back. And one quick last thought for you about 75. I just was right before we went on air, I was looking at the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange Fed probabilities. Mm -hmm. It still has a 70% chance. I know. The Fed's, it was 100 <laughs> before the meeting, but it's only down tick to 75 right now. So there's still credibility, a lingering doubt about where the Fed is. Remember, seven months ago, we were debating whether there was going to be one rate hike. And look at where we are right now. So Maybe the market will force them to reconsider 75 before the June meeting. Who knows at this point? Right. Yeah. I am not an interest rate trader, but th that doesn't seem like a, a horrible trade to fade the triple rate hike. Uh, Jim, I'm, you know, I remember last summer we had a conversation. You noticed that in the summer of 2021, you said, Jack, the Federal Reserve, they're starting to talk more about inflation than they are about COVID. I said, you know, you're right. Today, Jim, there wasn't a single question about COVID. And I think the only time it was acknowledged was at the very beginning. 
because now the, the meetings are in person. So that just goes to show uh, how far things have changed. Jim, you, you used a word, I believe it was code word. You said Powell is using a code word for we can hike, we can hike, we can hike. I know that you've been writing about how he's been using, Powell has been using stronger language than that. Uh, you know, things like the labor market can handle it or the uh, the market the labor market the economy is uh, quote unsustainably hot as before do you think that he uh, his comments were a little bit more moderated so he wasn't you know sort of revealing to the entire world just how hawkish his plans were well i think his comments were inconsistent because all of those code words you know in in other words just to reiterate what i said he's telling you he believes and i'm choosing my words carefully he believes that they can raise rates aggressively without creating unemployment. Because if they raise rates and create unemployment, they're going to stop. They're going to stop immediately with the rate hikes. But he's telling you, no, they can tighten financial conditions, <coughs> which is the euphemism for lower stock prices, and not create unemployment. And that's why when he uses these words, like he did in the March meeting, the, the labor market can handle these rate hikes. Or what he said two weeks ago, that the labor market was unsustainably hot. And he had similar types of statements that he said uh, at this meeting uh, as well, too. Uh, and that that is him telling you, because that's always been the retort, right? With the Fed's raising rates. And, the, and the, the, you know, the, the, the quip used to be, what do they have against poor people? Why do they want them to lose their jobs? And what he's trying to say is, they're not going to lose their jobs. We can continue to tighten financial conditions without there being a spillover effect into the uh, labor market, which means that the game is open for them to get aggressive. And then for him to put a cap on it by saying not 75, it seems almost to be too cute by half. Well, to Jim's point, I, I think something else Powell mentioned I thought was really interesting, and he's been talking about this a few times, is that he mentioned that basically priceability is a precondition to strong employment gains, right? So that basically does away with the Phillips curve. So usually these economists, they think about trade-off between employment and inflation, right? Now he's saying that there's basically no trade-off because if you want to have further employment gains, you need price stability. So that's a green light to hike. So there, it's like Jim mentioned, it's, 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 uh, it's a green light to just go aggressively. You know, and then I guess the real question then becomes what is going to be the longer term market reaction to all of this, you know, so yeah, Paul doesn't want a 3% rally. And, you know, it's funny because people are saying that this is the biggest rally that we've seen in the stock market in weeks. And the last biggest rally we saw in the stock market, this I was the last Fed meeting in March, the market had a huge reaction to it. And that was pretty much it. It then it kind of turned around after a couple of days and, you know, went, went south right after that. So, Maybe history will repeat again or one more time. Yeah, I think it also just goes to show the power of, uh, I guess, relativity. You know, if you get, you know, if you're in a, a, a pool of 35 degree water and then you get into a degree of 50 degree water, 50 degrees is going to feel very warm. You know, likewise, we're all, it's only going to be two rate hikes instead of three rate hikes in June. And that, you know, propelled the, allowed the stock market to just absolutely rip. A year ago, two rate hikes for the entire year were, were unthinkable. Right, right. Somebody wants to, somebody commented to me today. He goes, so let me get this straight. The stock market is digging the idea that we're going to have 50 every meeting and QT. When did that become the When did that become the bull case? But that seems to be um, what we've got, at least for today, for the bull case. But I want to ask Joseph a question. Um, 
one of the questions Powell was asked, it was Mike McKee of Bloomberg. And he was asked about uh, the runoff on the balance sheet. And two questions. One, do you think that them starting in June at $47.5 billion of runoff, that means that they're going to let $47.5 billion worth of securities mature and not reinvest and then increase that to their target of $95 billion over the next subsequent three months after June 1st, that that's kind of getting there in a very slow way. Uh, if with all this urgency about inflation, why are you going to basically take to Labor Day to get to your ultimate QT target? And the second thing, if I heard him correctly, did he say that a, that a year's worth of balance sheet reduction is worth one rate hike? That he's basically saying a trillion dollars of reduction of the balance sheet is equivalent of one twenty-five basis point hike. Do you buy that argument? That's that just the most ridiculous thing ever. And you know, yeah. you can tell from Powell that he didn't really buy it either, right? So this is one of the times that I'm really glad Powell was not a PhD economist because he looks at this and he knows that yeah, that's kind of silly, right? We we don't really know what the impact is. And there's actually some a lot of studies on on QE, right? So you, what they found there's a meta study that, that finds that basically when you look at QE, people have very, very wide uh, models that have different implications. If you're looking at private sector models, they, they tend to say it doesn't have a big impact. If you look at central bank models, they tend to think that it has a huge impact. You know, it's, it's, it's really inconclusive. And that's, that's kind of the Fed's view. And I think Powell's view as well. They, they don't really know how this works. And so they want, to, they want to shrink it and get back to interest rates, which they think they understand. But just, you know, a trillion dollars of treasuries adding to the private sector that the private sector has to absorb, that I think that's going to have a much bigger impact than, than 25 basis points. Actually, I, 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 don't, I don't think going from um, just starting today or starting next next month, I, I don't actually think that, that matters that much. I mean, uh, 40 billion for the treasury market, that, that's, that's, that's not that much, um, but it does add up. I think the pace that we're going it is pretty aggressive compared to last time around. If you remember last time around, the max that we did was 50 billion a month. And now we're doing 95 billion a month. And we're going to get there in three months. It, it does matter in my view that, that we don't go there right away because the market usually has to digest. Now, if you're like a PhD economist, you think there's some kind of price model, boom, prices get there. But and as you know, there's, people actually have to go and buy. There are frictions. People, dealers have to get... Uh, like people who buy it have to have financing. There has to be liquidity. So the market has to be able to absorb that and to, I guess, get used to this this lack of a Fed presence. So having a run up to me does make sense. But you know, and and, and to that end, um, the run up does make sense because when you mentioned PhD economists, the one thing I keep thinking about whenever I talk to PhDs at the Fed, can I do occasionally? Um, there's always the the argument between stock stock and flow. You know, that economists tend to think that the stock, how many trillions of dollars is the balance sheet, is what matters. Where the street thinks it's about the flow. How much a month are you buying or selling is what matters. And there's always been this conflict between stock and flow. And for the Fed to ease into it, you know, start June 1st, get to $95 billion three months after that, um, I think is a tacit admission that maybe flow matters a little bit more than they thought maybe five or seven years ago. Um, so I know that there's been some change in their thinking there. Would you agree with that? I think that makes sense. I mean, 
the thing is, I, I, for me, I, I don't actually know if stock or flow is, is more important. So if you don't know, and definitely for people who don't know, it, it's much better to have a cautious approach. Um, if you think back, for example, when we had a repo spike in 2019, people didn't really know whether or not there was not enough money in the repo market or if it had to do with reserves. So what the Fed did was it both topped up its repo lending facilities and it also added reserve to buying treasury bills, right? So when you don't know, you, you want to err on just doing err on the side of caution. So even if you don't think that the flow matters as much, you still want to, you don't know. So you want to have a little bit of that um, legging into it. But when, when you're thinking about stock though, I think something else that, that we should keep in mind is that the stock is not really completely dependent upon the Fed though. Because even if the Fed is buying a lot, you could have a lot of treasury issuance coming out of the U.S. Treasury. So that's always changing. And the Fed, it plays a role, but it, it's it's not determinative. The Fed could right. buy a tremendous amount of stuff, take away the stock. The Treasury can look at that and just issue a whole bunch of more. So um, the private sector when it could end up on net more with a with larger stock to hold. Hey, Jack, I got some good news for you, too. Um, one of the other questions, Paul did uh, reiterate that he's very happy with the forward guidance that the Fed is doing, and he believes it works very effectively. So um, your podcast doesn't have to th start thinking about a different name anytime soon. I am really happy, Jim, with the name <laughs> I've given my podcast. You know that I'm one of the best best uh, decisions of my life to call it forward guidance. It's free press every single FOMC meeting, uh, and actually, I'll, I'll and will continue that. to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he, Powell said, we don't have surgical, this is an exact quote, we don't have surgical tools. What the Fed has is interest rates, the balance sheet, and forward guidance. So there's rates, the balance sheet, which is quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, um, and then, excuse me, and forward guidance. Which of those three tools, Jim, would you say has played the most uh, uh, important role so far in this Fed hiking cycle, tightening cycle? I, I'd probably say at this point forward guidance because they haven't done a whole lot. I mean, they only raised rates for 50 basis points an hour and a half ago. You know, before an hour and a half ago, they've only done a grand total of one rate hike and they haven't done QT yet. But forward guidance, I think, cuts both ways. Paul mentioned with forward guidance, he said last September, the two-year yield was 21 basis points, 0.21%. <clears throat> Before the presser, it was 2.8%. Today, it fell down, you know, about 2.65 or so after the presser. The forward guidance of the Fed, forward guidance, they're going to tell you what they're going to do, helped to bring about that tightening of financial conditions, that big rise in interest rates. So it, it does the work for the Fed. They don't have to force rates up. They have to follow through on it, but the market is doing it. So in that respect, it's been very effective. The other thing that it, it's done, I think to some extent, is it's held them back. Um, is the Fed, let me, let me pivot to answer this part of the question. Is the Fed making a policy error in 2022 by aggressively raising rates? Will they cause a recession? Majority of economists think that that's a real possibility. The majority of the Fed does not think that that's a real possibility. Um, I would argue that the mistake was made last year with transitory inflation, that what they're doing now, they should have started a year ago or maybe 18 months ago with baby steps, reducing the balance sheet, maybe doing a 25 basis point cut every other meeting to kind of get the ball rolling. 
this year is the consequence of last year's mistake. They're way behind the curve now, and they've got to play a, a massive catch-up. So if this produces a mistake, a policy error that causes a recession or a severe downturn or something unintended, it was last year that was the mistake. This year is the consequence. Now, why I bring that up in the context of forward guidance? Because one of the other arguments that forward guidance has also kind of hamstrung them is when things move rapidly, the evolution of inflation moved rapidly for the Fed, they couldn't really catch up. They couldn't really look to maybe raising rates in January or maybe starting QT in the March meeting because they didn't forward guide it. So they've got to have all of this, um, you know, pre, pre-planning and pre, pre-announcements. That's why three weeks ago with the minutes, they dropped all of the detail about quantitative tightening in the minutes. They wanted it out there. They wanted everybody to know what it was going to be before today's meeting. So if you get into a period of rapidly evolving events and the Fed hasn't forward guided you to a change in policy, they might be willing to take more time than they need to. And that's why they fell behind the curve. So Paul's right. The forward guidance, we're going to raise rates, we're going to raise rates, shoving up two-year note yields is help do the work that they want to do. But why the Fed is so far behind the curve is because last year's transitory took them too long to figure out that that was wrong. And then they had the forward guidance. And now we're all the way to May 2022 when we finally get the QT announcement and a 50 basis point hike. I, I totally know what you mean about credibility, because even though credibility in the Federal Reserve's uh, tools to control inflation are quite low on a historical basis, maybe as, as low as you know the late 1970s, I think the ability for Jay Powell to go out there and say something and have the market believe him uh, is quite high. You know, as you said, so much of the tightening in the market has not been done by the Fed actually raising rates. It's been done by the forward guidance. And you know, Joseph, I want, I want to bring you in here. You know, you worked at the Federal Reserve, and I, I'm not familiar with the details, but I, I think that over the past decade, one phenomenon the Fed had to deal with was. They would say that they would raise rates and sort of the, the Fed fund futures interest rate markets, the euro dollar markets, just would not believe the Fed. But do you, would, it, would it be fair to say that the market, the, those markets now, quote, believe the Fed more? Uh, it looks like they, it looks like, they, I mean, look, the markets reacted very strongly today, right? When Powell took off the 2075 basis points, you immediately see, see that being priced into the market. So it looks like they are. Now, when Powell was asked his credibility question today, he kind of maybe misinterpreted he kind of interpreted as saying that the market we have the tools right whereas so when we say rates are going to go higher the market reacts but i think what the reporter was really asking was your credibility in achieving your goals not that your tools work so he kind of dodged that a little bit something i thought that was pretty interesting and in line with what jim was mentioning about them being behind the curb one of the last questions paul paul was received was um you know if, if you're kind of behind the curve, why aren't you moving to restrictive monetary policy, right? Why are you just going to neutral? Um, so I, I thought that was a pretty good question. I, Jim, what, what do you think? I mean, isn't it kind of strange if, if, you're, if you are so far behind, it would make sense theoretically to, to be above neutral rather than just kind of going to neutral. Um, although the, he, does, he did leave open that, that, that space, that possibility that we could go above neutral. 
Yeah, in the second half, he did leave it open that that, that they're ready, willing, and able to channel their inner Volker and go to very restrictive policy if that's what they they need to when he was praising Volker as well, too. But this is part of some of the confusion that there is in the marketplace. You know, the Fed is behind the curve, but they're going to hurry up and get to neutral. And the 500 PhDs at the Fed have decided that neutral is somewhere between 2 and 3% is a kind of a number he threw out. Gee, thanks, Jay, for put, you know narrowing it down to between 2 and 300%. Um, you know, if, if you told me that my house is somewhere between 2 and 3 miles away from your house, that's not really very helpful in trying to get, in trying to, get to where you want to be. And history has always shown, as I like to say, the Fed never really knows where neutral is. They always know where neutral was. You know, that they they usually raise rates too much or don't raise enough. And then they kind of figure out after the fact um, where their their mistake was in terms of getting to neutral. And let me throw another one of these things out there, too. If you believe the last um, uh, SCP, uh, the dot plot, if you will, for the Fed, uh, summary of economic projections, They've got for 22, 23, and 24, they've got the inflation rate going all the way back by 2024 to 2%. And they've got the inflation and they've got the unemployment rate at 3.5% this year, which is where it is now, 3.5% next year, and at 3.5% in 2024. So they've got they've got the economy staying at full employment the next two years and the inflation rate going all the way back down to near 2% over the next two years without them necessarily having to tighten policy. There's only one argument that makes that work. They still believe inflation is transitory. And let me give you a definition of transitory inflation, that the Fed doesn't have to do anything to try and bring inflation down. It will naturally peak. It will naturally recede because of events that are already in motion. The supply chains get better. People's preferences shift from goods to services as we reopen the economy. These are the arguments that they, they're using. And so it seems like under the covers, there's still a broad belief in the Voldemort word, the word we can't say, transitory. They still think that some level of this inflation is transitory. And maybe later this year, if inflation stays stubbornly high, they might start talking about moving towards a restrictive policy, but they're not ready to go there just yet. And Jim, I what's think, your outlook on- I think on... that's completely right, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry? So, uh, just, I think that's uh, completely right. I mean, mm -hmm. like, like we've mentioned, he's just going to go to neutral, then hope for the best. He probably still does believe, like you mentioned, that it's transitory. Jim, what is your outlook on inflation? You know, you've been very right, very ahead of the curve uh, over the past year and a half uh, that inflation would come. It's here. Uh, last month's inflation was 8.5% for US CPI. We're going to get uh, um, uh, uh, April's reading uh, next week. What is your outlook? Are we close to getting a peak inflation? You know, I know you've been looking, doing a lot of work on the rental car prices and, and the housing. What, what, do you, you know, what do you think? How quickly is this going to moderate, if at all? Well, I think there's two there's two aspects to that. One is inflation going to peak, and you can make a, a credible case if it hasn't already in March. Within the next two or three months, we might see peak inflation. Okay, that doesn't mean a whole lot. 
I think really the, the real nut of the question is, is how fast will it recede? And I think the answer is it's not going to recede as fast as everybody thinks. It's going to stay stubbornly high, you know, that we're going to see those numbers not come down very quickly. Um, two things have got this. Let me start with the short term and then I'll go with the bigger picture. Uh, on the short term, I've been following this Car Gurus index. CarGurus.com is the used car website. They actually have a daily index that they update every day that shows the average price of a car um, in the United States, uh, used car for sale in the United States. It had peaked in January. Um, it had come down quite a bit through March. That was reflected in core CPI in March. That index has rebounded all the way back to a new high yesterday. So we're back in a new all-time high on used car prices. If you're wondering about that uh, versus the Mannheim uh, index, the Mannheim index is wholesale cars. Those are cars that are sold at auction. CarGurus is the actual retail price of cars. Retail price of cars usually drives the demand, which auction prices will typically follow. But also yesterday, Bloomberg had a story that the largest market in Europe is Germany, and used car prices in Germany have also hit a new all-time high in the month of April as well, too. So you're not really seeing all of those reopening products or the big one, let me say the big one, of um, used cars maybe yet hasn't receded. Airline tickets, they're definitely not receding. You know, rental car prices are not receding um, as well, too. Now, this gets me to the big picture on inflation. And I'm going to credit where I get this from, and that's Nick Bloom who's a professor at Stanford University who has been studying remote work and work from home for 20 years. And all of a sudden, his topic that he's been an analyzing for decades became the single most important topic post-pandemic is this whole work from home phenomenon. And to summarize it, I think we are vastly understating the importance of work from home and remote work. That Roughly 45% of all the jobs in the United States can be performed remotely or fully remotely, or at least in a hybrid situation. And of those 40%, 45% of those jobs, about half of them are some version of remote work right now. And according to Bloom, this is permanent. We are not going back the other way. We are not... Goldman Sachs is trying to get everybody back to a 5-0 workday, five days in the office. Goldman Sachs is the outlier that's pushing harder than everybody else. They've got a mutiny on their hands, and they've got a lot of internal strife on their hands because they're, they've got managing directors running around taking attendance at Goldman Sachs' headquarters like, like everybody's in third grade. But very few other people are trying to do that right now. Because of remote work, it just doesn't mean, oh, so, you know, you just sit at home and Zoom. Lots of things change, starting with your consumption basket. You consume more stuff, less services, because I'm at home more. A lot of the services I consumed was because I woke up and I went to a, an office or a factory or a shop or a school nine to five. So a lot of what's happening in the economy is changing. I think that ultimately we need to have a conversation about, do we need to change the supply lines for work from home? Remember, it's a third of the, maybe a third to a quarter of the population now is doing it, where it was less than 5% two years ago. And that number will probably increase over the next five or 10 years. 
that is going to be remote work? Um, do we need to start thinking about producing different things and producing other things as well? But instead of having that question, we get what Greg Ipp wrote in the Wall Street Journal today. I love Greg Ipp. I think he's great. But his pa- basically his argument in the paper today was, oh, it's all going to go back to 2019 and the economy is going to return to some pre-pandemic state fairly soon. And he used this as an example, you know, the Zooms and the Peloton stocks of the world have gotten wrecked. So that's a sign that we're all going to go back to work five days a week or some version of that. And talking to Bloom, I don't think that's going to happen. We're in, you know, or to put it the way that I expressed it to him when I talked to him a couple of days ago and he didn't disagree with me, is you want to know what the, you want to know what the post-pandemic economy is going to look like? Looks like what we have right now. This is it. There is no more waiting for a post-pandemic economy. We have arrived at it right now. And now that we're here, we're going to have to start thinking about changing the, uh, the structure of the economy. So that's a long-winded way to say, I think prices are going to stay out of balance. I think that the supply chain problems are going to remain a lot longer than we think. The supply chain is not about that Shanghai shut down. Uh, and Beijing may shut down, but then they'll reopen. But it's also about we consume different things because our work-life balance has changed for enough of us. And yet we don't want to say, look, we have to start changing the economy for this new reality. We'd rather argue whether it's happening in the first place. And if we're going to argue about it, prices are going to continue to have more friction than usual, and they're going to stay higher than usual and inflation is going to have a very difficult time coming down for years until we start to realize this and we restructure the economy. We're just not ready to do it yet. I think to Jim's point, when we during the pandemic, we saw the strong shift into goods purchases rather out of services, right? And all the many people were looking at that, waiting for that to reverse, but it it didn't really reverse, though, right? So that that's just something structural, like Jim mentioned, that people are going to be buying things a different consumption basket going forward. Yeah, it, it has reversed slightly. And, you know, to be fair, but the vast majority of that shift towards goods and away from services has not reversed. And again, people argue, well, it will, it, it's going to reverse. It's going to reverse as the economy reopens. And it gets back to my comment. We are reopened. This is the, this is the post-pandemic economy. The Fed just held a presser with everybody in person. We've arrived in the post-pandemic economy, and now we need to start to understand how this is different from the pre-pandemic economy. Instead of waiting to use Dave Solomon, the chairman of Goldman Sachs, who made this statement a couple of months ago while he's pushing everybody back into the office, he's argued that in 2024, 2025, he thinks that Midtown Manhattan will look exactly like it looked in 2019 uh, and that we're going to go 100 percent back to the pre-pandemic world. I don't think we're going to do that. Uh, And I think we need to understand what the post-pandemic world is. But what Solomon is arguing is don't do anything. Just wait for everything to return to the way it used to be pre-pandemic. And that's why we're going to continue to have frictions. We're going to continue to have problems with the economy as we move forward. And what I can conclude from that, Jim, is that inflation will be more sticky and because of the supply side. And the Federal Reserve has essentially no control over the supply side. So it will have to go harder and harder, tightening monetary policy on the demand side. And a reporter actually asked Powell, and and he uh, said exactly that. And I believe he said something like, 
we still have quite some ways on the, the demand side. And you also said the word reverse, Jim, which makes me think about the reverse wealth effect. Of course, the wealth effect via quantitative easing, asset prices balloon, and people feel very wealthy, and then they spend a lot of money that stimulates the economy. It's a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Reverse wealth effect is stocks go down. You feel less wealthy. Your, your house gets quoted. You, you, uh, it's less valuable. You spend less. It, the, it's a vicious cycle instead of a, a virtuous one, depending depending on your outlook. Uh, Jim, by the way, I've got, uh, I think, all of you, the charts that you emailed uh, me. So in case you want to talk about them, I can definitely put them on screen. You've got uh, some tremendous charts on the, the, the bond markets. I want to get there as well. But uh, let's, let's talk about the stock market as well. How much Pain, you know, uh, roughly, I don't know exactly where we are year to down, uh, drawdown in, in the S and P five hundred, but how bad yeah, 10%. is it? And do, do you think we're close? Do you think we're close to the point where uh, we'll have the reverse wealth effect, or are we not close? Um, I, I, I think we're at the beginnings of it right now, uh, as far as the reverse wealth effect. Let me give you an amazing statistic. This comes from um, um, Redfin. Redfin is the real estate uh, site uh, that puts together a lot of statistics uh, and their chief economist has a blog. And he noted that last year, 2021, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the median income, the median salary in the United States was $52,000. So half of us made more than 52, half of us made less than $52,000. <clears> they noted from their statistics on house prices the median home price last year went up $54,000. That the average person made more money from their home going up in value last year than they did going to work. And that that 2006 or any other, never close to anything like that ever happening. That is a powerful wealth effect. That is a powerful demand driver. Add in that last year, you had a 29% increase in the S&P 500. And so you had a powerful wealth effect that was going on in the economy. Now, the reverse wealth effect has been kicking in in two ways. First of all, if you look at the Fed's uh, um, survey of consumer finances, the one they do every three years, this made news a couple of years ago. When I tell you about it, you'll probably remember it when I say it, where they said 40% of the American public has less than $1,000 of savings and they rent, those people are seeing a huge reverse wealth effect because they, like you and me, they don't own a home. They don't have a stock portfolio that, you know, their home going up $54,000 last year if they own the median home and a, and a stock portfolio that might have went up nearly 30% last year. And so that they're better off because of the inflationary spurt through 2021 they just lost and lost. Their paycheck bought less and less. They had a huge reverse wealth effect because of inflation. But for stock investors, I think it's only beginning. And what's important to understand about the stock market is the Fed, I think their policy is now oriented towards those 40%. They need to get inflation down. And it's interesting because we've always talked about for decades about Fed independence and Fed independence was always about politicians will make Fed will make the Fed cut rates to zero or like Trump wanted. Maybe why doesn't the Fed go to negative rates? You know, that a, a real estate guy thinks that the best the only thing that's better than zero rates is negative rates and that we needed to have the Fed to be independent to protect them against that. 
Now we've got the politicians demanding that they raise rates and raise rates aggressively to deal with inflation because that 40% is behind. If you read Nate Silver at the 538 blog, he details this quite a bit. That is definitely behind the unpopularity of the president and Congress because of, of inflation. Inflation is the number one political um, um, uh, circumstance in the country right now, ahead of immigration, ahead of crime, ahead of social justice, climate change, whatever you want to fill in the blank with. Inflation is number one. So now let me turn to one other, throw out one other statistic in here too. Last month, Bill Dudley had an op-ed in Bloomberg. Now, Bill Dudley was the president of the New York Fed. He left two years ago. I've always joked, like Joseph, the best Fed people to watch are the ones that recently left because they tell you what they tell you what they think, and they're not just reading like Dudley would talking points that were handed to him. Dudley had an op-ed last month that had the headline: "If the stock market doesn't go down, the Fed may need may be forced to lower it." In other words, the policy of the Federal Reserve is to lower the stock market. That is the policy, according to Dudley. He's tightened financial conditions. What's yeah, tightening financial? <laughs> yes, we can't say lower the stock market. We have to say tightening financial conditions, which is the euphemism yeah. for lowering the stock market. It also means higher interest rates uh, yeah. as well, too. But that's what their policy is, and that's why when I was going back earlier and talking earlier, I was talking about. The idea that when when Powell comes out and says the labor market is great, he's telling you, I can just jam those hikes right up your ass, to use a technical term. I hope I don't go too technical for everybody, because I'm not going to unemploy anybody. And that's what Dudley was trying to tell us as well, too, because he's a former guy. He could kind of say those, so, those types of things. So when you ask me about the stock market and the reverse wealth effect, Yes, for the 40 percent, not necessarily yet for stockholders, I think, or for homeowners. I think they're still on the fence about whether or not they're going to start to reduce their purchases because of the fall in the economy or the fall in the stock market. Look, it's not even clear that home prices have even begun to roll over anyway um, at this point. So I still think that if Dudley's right, the policy is to lower the stock market. And they don't think they're hurting the unemployment situation. They're coming after the stock market. And to be very careful with them coming after the stock market, because I think they're going to be successful at it. Joseph? No, absolutely. I mean, that, that's basically what Bill Dudley laid out. And the thing is, like, look what happened today. So the stock market rallied hugely, right? I mean, that, that just means we're going to have to keep hiking, maybe 50 basis points three times or four times more, maybe as Jim suggested, maybe we'll just keep doing this. So so uh, I, I think we really can't. So Powell mentioned that there's both a lot of demand and there's also a negative supply shock. They can't really do much about the supply shock, but they can do that, the demand shock. Easiest and most efficient way for a central bank to do that is to haircut net worth. That's basically affecting the stock markets and affecting the real estate market. So it, it's probably they're, they're the only tool they have actually. But a quick what, what word be... about, I, I was just going to say a quick word about demand, uh, just real quick, just to f f fill in on your comment. The OECD, the o uh, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, looks at all of the developing economies, about the top 30 of them, and they harmonize a lot of the uh, statistics so you could compare them across countries. 
The highest inflation rate in the developed world right now is in the United States. We are the highest. That is rare. Usually the U.S. is somewhere in the middle. We're not the highest. We're not the lowest. We kind of vacillate in the middle. But we're number one right now in terms of inflation. What could account for that? San Francisco <laughs> Fed has done a study and some others. We stimulated more than any other domestic or developed economy. The combination of fiscal stimulus with the mailing of money and the aggressive central bank easing, the combination there too made us the largest in terms of a percentage of GDP of any other country. We have the highest inflation rate of any other developed country. So when Powell says there's a lot of room that they could bring down demand, they can't do anything about supply, but boy, there's a lot of demand that they could take out of this market, meaning they can raise rates a lot and they can get people to back off quite a bit. To your point, the Bank of England has a piece that, that has a graph that shows pandemic programs. And from that graph, you can see that for all the other countries, they gave pandemic fiscal programs and they allowed the, their workers, their income to not decline as much as they otherwise would have, except what happened in the U.S., our fiscal programs gave people much more money than they otherwise would have. So the U.S. is basically the only country where workers actually made more money during the pandemic than they otherwise would have. So that goes a long way at explaining that enormous amount of demand, excess demand that we have that's driving up inflation. But something else that I thought was really interesting during the conference was that Powell noted that he could do something about demand and that's something that he can work on. And he kind of sidestepped the question about what he would do in the case there was a there was just supply. Now, eventually, he might get to a point where there's no more excess demand, but we still have these supply shocks that we've mentioned before. The Eurozone is basically in that context now, and they're still hiking. So, you know, even if we get to a place there where there's no more demand, there's just supply shocks, it, it might really be the policy response to just continue hiking. Yeah, well, when you have a like, uh, producer price index at 30%, it's you got you got to tighten policy, right? You would um, think. <laughs> what else? Can, what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, Jim, when you were just um, you're talking about the wealth effect, that made me think of a lot of maybe technology workers who would work at a company that just went public recently, and they'd be paid in stock, and they got you know quite wealthy on paper, uh, you know, as of a year ago, and that you know, a lot of stocks have just been cut in half or cut in fourths, and uh, that that definitely will the reverse re, uh, reverse wealth effect is in play, uh, definitely for. For, for some folks. Jim, I want to ask you about the credit markets. Yeah. Uh, are you seeing any stress there? You know, a lot of, you know, J Joseph uh, said to me earlier that the Federal Reserve, you know, essentially needs to destroy wealth. And a lot of almost up until very recently, like a month ago, Jim, so much uh, the vast majority of the losses in fixed income were due to interest rate risk. So a two year treasury was worth a lot less and a, a two year investment grade bond was worth a lot less, but for the same reason. It wasn't that the credit spread was widening. But, uh, you know, has that changed over the past few weeks? I know, you know Joseph and I on Monday spoke to Daniel DiMartino Booth, who who uh, is seeing some widening in, in credit and think that that if the economy slows, that could be uh, you know an, an area of concern. Yeah, um, there's one chart that I did send you. Uh, if you've got it, Jack, it's the the year to date returns of the um, Bloomberg Global Aggregate Index. Uh, if you could throw that one up, and what this shows is all these great, this goes, this index started in 1990. It's the glo global aggregate index. What that means is it covers 28,000 bonds and 60 plus trillion dollars of assets. All those gray lines are different years. Uh, that 
big thick blue line is this year. The sell-off on a total return basis, total return means the combination of the coupon income plus the price change, has been truly historic of what we've seen. Now, there's a, another version of that chart, too, that shows you um, the monthly change uh, in that index. And if you look at the monthly change in that index, um, what you'll find is, um, uh, let's see, the uh, this April was the worst month on record that that index lost 4% of its value. Now, one of the things I've argued is a twofold thing about this. One, um, this is such a historic decline. There's that Deutsche Bank chart that you just had in there that uh, they put out a couple of days ago. This is stunning. Actually, I've got the same. Yes, I've got the same data. And I think this is right. January through April. You got to go back, and I'm not making this up. You got to go back to 1788 to find a worst beginning of the year for a bond market. You got to go back to the year after the Constitution was signed to find that the bond market has been that bad. So what I've argued with these charts is the bond market is not designed for this. The financial system is not designed for this level of loss. This is truly stunning. And there is a tremendous amount of stress in the system. Now, I don't know if I sent you the chart of what the bank stocks have been doing, but I'll just say it. For the last three months, the bank stock index is down in the U.S. The KBW index of the large banks is down 23%. The stocks, uh, bank stock index in Europe is down 25% in three months. Now, most people believe that in a period of rapidly rising rates, that should be bullish for bank stocks. They're getting decimated right now. Now, why are they getting decimated? I think there's tremendous stress in the financial system right now. It hasn't bubbled over. We don't have stories of hedge funds blowing up or massive losses that are debilitating firms because of the bond market. Yeah, we got the Bill Wangs of the world and stuff, but that's not related to the bond market uh, that, that's happened to them. So what we've got is just this tremendous amount of stress. And I don't think the system has been designed for this yet. And what's also interesting, getting to what I saw the interview with Danielle um, earlier this week about credit, is that all of this has been attributed to a rise in interest rates, or as we like to say in the bond market, duration. Duration is what has been driving this whole thing. Now, interestingly, the Fed in the post-crisis, the post-financial crisis world has had all these stress tests that they've put on financial institutions. Uh, and all these stress tests, and I remember I even was, was remarking about this throughout the 2010s. Well, what happens if you know credit widens out or there's this problem or that's problem? And every scenario that the Fed wanted to stress test the financial system was what if somebody other than the Fed screws things up? How are we going to make sure that the financial system survives? But never did they ask, what if the Fed screws things up and interest rates go vertical? Well, that's exactly what's happening. So, Jay, your stress test, you never stress tested yourself in there. And maybe you should because the stress that we have in the system now is not credit induced. Uh, it is interest rate induced. And it's because you're so far behind the curve. And the concern I have is 
When you look at the bond market having its worst sell-off in 200 years, that the global index has never done anything remotely close to this, I understand that the financial system is a deep, opaque, complicated world. All I'll say is no one expected this to happen because it's never remotely happened before. And if no one has expected this to happen, if rates continue to go in this direction, there's going to be real problems that are bubbling up. Now, we know some of them. The yen is one that it's been having a big problem because of interest rates. Maybe the euro is, is, is another one that's having a problem because of interest rates. Maybe because credit is becoming an issue, you're starting to see a lot of deals in the high yield and even in the investment grade is getting pulled. The other day, Ford couldn't finish off doing some asset back sales because of the rise in interest rates. But these are around the edges right now. They haven't really come into the main phone. So I'm very worried when I see charts like that have never happened before because I, I know I've been around the markets long enough that if you would have asked somebody two years ago, hey, what would happen to your bank or to your hedge fund or to your brokerage firm if like the global aggregate index lost 11% of its value in four or five months? The answer would have been two years ago. Well, it doesn't do that. It, it would never happen because it's never done that before. Well, it has now. And I don't think people have properly accounted for it. And so while we don't have the stories of blows up, people blowing up, there's a lot of very, very stressed firms and very, very stressed people out there in the markets right now. Yeah, I have a, a lot of concerns about the European banks, given their exposure to Russia, but also to commodity trading firms that are going to need more and more margin as you know, if the volatility in commodities persists. Uh, but Jim, you know, I have encountered the mainstream view. You, you hear it on TV all the time that rising rates are good for banks. And you know, I've occasionally gone through like a, a bank's annual report, and they'll say if banks rise by if, if rates rise by 100 basis points, we we make five billion dollars. Um, so I, I want to get more of your analysis on why that's bad for banks. But first, I want to bring in Joseph because Joseph, I know uh, if I'm not mistaken, you actually are quite constructive in, about banks at this time. You think that something. Um, you know, some, something they're, they're attractive for some reason. And then I, I want to get Jim, who's got the opposite view. <laughs> no, you're right. I'm actually a buyer of banks at this level. I think banks are going to do very well. I mean, like you mentioned, Jack, banks, for, for example, at least in the current structure of the financial system, when the, when the Fed raises rates, banks hold a tremendous amount of cash at the Fed, right? So that all that extra interest income goes straight to their bottom line. As Jim mentioned, there, there is some a lot of duration risk in in the uh, in the markets, but the way that banks are managed these days, that that's really all hedged. So they they all, all flop to to floating. And in terms of credit risk, I, I don't really worry about that. Banks are pretty conservative. I mean, we're in an inflationary environment, so that means that means that banks are that means if you're a debtor, your your income it's increasing, right? So all the debt that you borrowed in the past few years, you were borrowed at very low rates, and going forward, you're going to have a lot of higher income through inflation. So just that segment of the financial system, I, I don't really worry about. I think that their incomes will, will probably increase if we're looking, if we're moving into an inflationary world, as I as I think. But just broadly speaking, though, there are a lot of other places in the markets where we do have to be careful. For example, do you differentiate between other financial firms and banks? So finance companies, insurance companies, brokerage firms are those? Yes, absolutely. Those are different from banks. You think? I think of them as differently. So banks yeah. are super super regulated much safer, manage the duration much better, have access to Fed. So that means that 
there's no liquidity risk, and they have they're able to hold lots of safe assets as deposits at the Fed, right? So let's say we're hiking to three percent, IOR goes to three percent. You know, just a year ago the IOR was zero. So if you have like five hundred billion dollars in reserves, like let's say JPM does, that's a, suddenly a lot of interest income that flows straight to your bottom line. Furthermore, deposit betas are really low, so your funding costs basically don't change. A year from now, they're probably still going to be zero. But it's going to be very different for these other more shadow banks like dealers or hedge funds and so forth. Uh, to Jim's point, so looking at that chart that Jim showed, there's tremendous amounts of stress in the bond market. And that mechanically bleeds through all financial markets because you have all these people who all these 60-40 portfolios who link both the equity and stock market together. So when they have losses on their bonds, they're going to have to sell their equities, right? So that broadens the stress through to more more players. So everyone who owns financial assets, stocks or bonds are, are going to get hit. We saw Tiger Global go down a whole bunch, right? So um, there are pockets in the financial system that, that are going to be in a lot of stress, but I just don't think the banks are. Banks are basically socialized post-GFC. You can see that during the COVID crisis, right? Bond funds, a tremendous amount of stress. Dealers did, money funds did, but the banks, they were fine. Jim? If I was to uh, draw a delineation on the banks, I would say there's large banks and then there's the small banks. And the small banks are more idiosyncratic. That They have their individual stories. They're doing different things. They're in different uh, locations under different state charters. And some of those um, can wind up being very good investments. Problem with the large banks, let me start big. What Joseph was talking about that they're highly regulated and that they're highly and that they're highly socialized. In, since 2014, uh, since 2007, the last 14 years or so, uh, if you look at the 11 sectors of the S&P 500, the one that has been the worst performing has been the financial sector. No, it's dead last. And within the financial sector, the industries that make up the financial sector, the one that's dead last there is the banking industry. So in the last 14 years, single worst idea somebody could have had has been the banking sector because it's lost. I mean, it, literally the, the S&P 500 bank stock index is up something like 25% in 14 years, where technology is up like 900% in the last 14 years or something. That's how much it's, it's underperformed. Now, one of the reasons, obviously, is we've turned banks into socialized utilities, the big ones. Talk about the S&P 500 banks. Small banks, they've got a little bit more maneuverability. They don't have a real option to give you much upside. They don't have a real option um, to give you much downside. Uh, and so as far as the banking system goes, I think that they're, they're kind of stuck. That's the way that I look at them. Um, they might provide you a place to hide because, you know, they're not going to go down as much. They're certainly not going to give you kind of any kind of upside. And now that we've got this stress in the system, I think that any levered institution, whether you're talking about a hedge fund, a financial company, a brokerage firm, a bank, I think is going to continue to be under a lot of stress. The final thing I'll say about the banks, uh, if there's a market, if there's a message about the banks, it is that. Whenever I look and I say, wow, there's one of the industries that's one of the worst performers over some long period of time, historically, they've been ripe for disruption, that this has been the market signal that this business model needs to be disrupted. I think that's been the case with the banks for a long time. But the problem is they're so highly regulated. It's in very, very difficult to disrupt them. 
DeFi, crypto is trying to disrupt them. Maybe it does, uh, but it's going to be a long road before they get there. I think they will, but it's going to be a long road with a lot of pitfalls before they get there. A lot of failure, a lot of angst, and a lot of success. But I do think that the market is telling the banking system that there needs to be a change. The problem is, if you look at the very large banks, you know, Goldman Sachs is a bank. They want everybody back in the office five days a week. So does JP Morgan. They're, they're kind of going in the opposite direction of everybody else. They're not ready to make that change. So I've been down on the banks for a long time because I see that there, there needs to be some kind of a change. There needs to be some kind of a disruption. Now, the small banks take a Silvergate out of San Diego, which has been heavily into the crypto space, or Bank of Oklahoma, which has been doing some very interesting things as well, too. Whole different story because they don't have that onerous regulation. They don't have to put together the 250,000 page living will that they that the large banks have had to do because they're not SIFIs, systemically important financial institutions that are that get all of these onerous regulations put on them. There's some opportunities there. But the big firms, I think, are they've been underperformers. They've been struggling. And I think they're going to stay that way until there's some kind of a disruption that forces kind of a change of the status quo. Mm. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. We were running a little long. Uh, I do have one more question, but uh, before I ask it, I just want to say uh, thank you everyone for watching. Uh, you should definitely subscribe to the Blockworks YouTube channel as we've been putting uh, this on, on the bottom. Definitely uh, follow Jim Bianco and at Bianco Research on Twitter. Uh, Joseph can be found at FedGuy12 and uh, follow Blockworks at Blockworks underscore. Uh, my final question is, uh, Joseph, you said to me earlier that much more important than rate hikes being sort of pulled into the future on the interest rate forward curve is the level is the terminal rate, the absolute level of how high they can they can uh, hike. I think today is a, is a day that that sort of puts that theory to the test because the triple hike in June is off the table, and even though before we were filming, it's still. Uh, priced at 75%. I mean, it's if Powell said we're not thinking about it, it's it's likely off the table. So uh, rates have sort of been pushed out. However, the terminal rate remains stubbornly about 3.4%. So uh, what do you think about, about your, your theory that it's the terminal rate that matters? And then also, do you think that the Federal Reserve will get to 3.4%? A lot of people think no way. A lot of people say yes. And then, uh, Jim, I want your take on it as well. Joseph. So like your show, show title suggests, it's all about forward guidance. So if it's there, it's already there. The Fed has, the Fed has already gotten there. What I think that's interesting about 3.5% is that if you remember back in, in 2018, that's we got around about this level priced in and then everything started melting down, right? So that suggests to me that the system has trouble handling high rates because we have a high level of debt. When basically, when you hike rates and you have a high level of debt, someone incurs losses, they have to sell and so forth. It, it's a mess. We have a much higher level of debt in the system, so there are more losses that have been incurred. So I, I suspect that we we probably won't be able to price in any more hikes, because if we do, I think things will start to melt down. But, we'll, but basically, the Fed will be able to achieve its reverse wealth effect that we've been talking about, without having to force the market to price price even more. Um, so I suspect that eventually something will break, and we'll have to go back to cutting rates or QE again. But um, we're not going to hike the overnight rate up to three and a half, I don't think. 
I would agree with that, that, you know, the old adage in the market is, is that, you know, rates will continue to trend higher until something breaks. The last time something broke, rates were at two and three eighths. Um, that's when Joseph fixed the repo market with Lori Logan back in uh, 2019, because uh, that's what broke ba uh, back then at that point. If we were to get above two and three eighths on the funds rate, and if we were to get above 325 on the 10 year note, be the first time in 40 years that we've had a higher high, and that might change the equation. And so, really, I guess the question comes down to about the three and a half percent terminal rate. That's the market rate, by the way. The Fed's dot plot still thinks yep. it's two and a half, right? Or around two and a half. Uh, and again, this terminal rate is something we, we can't measure. We can only guess at it. So the market's guess is like 3.4 and the Fed's guess is like 2.5, but above the last time we broke something. So it really comes down to, can we handle rates that high? Usually the answer has been for the last 40 years, no. At every lower level, we break something and then the Fed has to stop and start easing and rates come down. But will we actually wind up going to that level without breaking anything? I'm not sure. But what I am sure of is this whole idea that the Fed's going to just stop at some point. I mean, I, I still think there's a lot of people that, oh, the Fed can't raise rates that much. They might break something, so they won't go there. No, they'll go there. They'll break it uh, because they're not going to stop and say that I just give up on inflation. So... The terminal funds rate, I agree. That is a very, very interesting question. Do we do we make it all the way to three and a half without breaking anything? Uh, my guess is no. We will break something and we'll probably force the Fed to change course. But remember, we've broken something. So there'll be a big mess on their hands uh, that we're going to have to wind up dealing with um, as well, too. So we'll see which way we wind up going. But if we don't break something, I do think we'll get to three and a half because that's where we seem to destined to go. The Fed fund futures, if you look out through the middle of 23, that's where they've got it priced at 325 to 350 by the July 2023 meeting is where they've got it priced out right now. When you say break something, how much damage are we talking? Is is the a break is a you know. Uh, the sell-off in the S&P 500 of a little over 20% in 2018 that caused the Powell pivot, is that enough of a of a break or do we need a bigger break? And is it not in so, stocks? It's in credit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define break something as an event, an event that causes the Fed to have to change the course on tightening. Now, there's three options that you, I could give you on that event. One of them is a tightening of financial conditions. That can be the stock market goes down, credit spreads widen or both at the same time to the point where they freak out and they start uh, changing changing policy. 87 was a great example of that when the stock market crashed in 87. The other one is, is maybe the economy turns south and that they have to start dealing with the economy turning south. 2006, when home prices peaked and started down in late 06, early 07, and they started to respond uh, to that uh, as well or the pandemic itself. It was obvious once the lockdowns came that the economy was going to have a problem. That could be something breaks. The third something breaks is in the plumbing of the financial system. 98, long-term capital uh, failed, essentially failed, and the Fed had to orchestrate a bailout, uh, Greenspan did through the New York Fed, a bailout of, of long-term capital. 2019, 
the repo market had its problem. 1994, Cater Peabody failed. Orange County failed. Eventually, you had the Mexican te tequila crisis, the devaluation of the Mexican peso. All of these were about higher interest rates, breaking either financial conditions or breaking the plumbing of the markets or failures of firms or the economy itself. So it doesn't have to be, well, when we break something, how far down does the S&P have to go? Look, we could wake up one morning if rates continue high enough and find that some financial institution, maybe it's not a regulated bank, but a financial institution is in a bad place. And that creates havoc in the markets and the Fed has to change its course. We could wake up Friday morning and subsequent first Fridays in the next few months and find that the economic data is turning south in a big way. That could do it as well, too. So historically, the market will keep going until we break something. But break, I know everybody thinks S&P down 30%, 25%. It can be that, but it doesn't have to only be that. There's lots of other ways you can do that. So it's an event that would say to the Fed, we got to stop. We got to stop with the Fed rate hikes. We got to stop with the QT. Um, you know, and we don't have that event right now. And for the moment, it doesn't look like it's imminent. But if I think if rates continue on this path, we're going to get there. Hmm. Uh, Joseph, I'll, I'll give you the final word. You know, when we do get there, if we do get there, that might be a good thing, right? That might be what actually gets inflation down. If we do have something breaks, you know, maybe that wealth effect, reverse wealth effect comes into full play. Fed's job, mission complete, right? People aren't going to be buying huge penthouses, Ferrari cars and all that because, well, just something broke. You could, can I, if I, if I can underscore that, you're absolutely right. Um, that breakage could give the Fed what they need. Oh, look, we've broke the back of inflation because we killed demand for stuff and mission accomplished. You know, when you said that, I, I remember the metaphor that I've used about Fed policy. It's like I go to the doctor with a, with an infection in my leg and he pulls out a bone saw and he says it works every time. It's like, well, that's kind of not the way I wanted you to fix the infection. But I know it's got a 100 percent track record. And that's kind of what the Fed would basically be saying, too. You know, whipped out that bone saw and we fixed that problem there. You don't have that infection anymore. That's called inflation. So, yeah, that's a way to fix inflation. But that's kind of not the way we ultimately want to fix inflation. And I don't know if the Fed should take a victory lap if, you know, if we break things and, there, and there's a big mess all over the floor and go, good, now there's no more inflation. Well, Powell did say the tools are very blunt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very sharp. Uh, well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching. If you want uh, more about this, I definitely recommend uh, Jim has got posted some great charts on Twitter, uh, as does Joseph. And, and Joseph's uh, writings can be found at, at fedguy.com. Joseph also has a book, Central Banking 101. <laughs> and don't forget to subscribe to BlockWorks. Thank you so much.